You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 6, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If you're a repeat listener, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate your support and spreading the word to your friends. If you're a first-time listener, thanks for stopping in. I think you'll find this episode very interesting. I would recommend you go back and, of course, listen to the other episodes I've done. It costs you nothing but a little bit of your time. Today's guest is Dr. Ken Fisher, who is a nephrologist in Kalamazoo. Dr. Fisher has been the program director for two internal medicine residencies, two nephrology fellowships, and has published several scientific papers in nephrology, along with many articles in a chapter regarding healthcare policy. He's also the author of Understanding Healthcare, A Historical Perspective. His recently published article in the Wall Street Journal is what first led me to contact him and discuss electronic health records. And that's our discussion today. At least that's where we start. We're going to discuss electronic health records and why your nurse and physician spend half the time staring at a computer screen, if you're lucky, only half the time, instead of talking to you. And if you're a physician or nurse, find yourself spending so much time clicking that you're not doing what you really enjoy, which is interacting with patients, laying on in hands, and taking care of people. As always, the show notes page can be found at theparadox.com slash 006. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Baleen, who has become the new patron saint for the show. You can go to patreon.com slash theparadox and show your support for the show. Besides the shout-out, there's bonus content. And depending on your level of giving... Other goodies that come along with it. For Baleen, for instance, as a patron saint, you get to have your own episode or an interview of some sort. Well, she's already the star of episode two, so I'll have to figure out what to do for her. But anyway, please visit patreon.com slash theparadox, and there you can express your support and help spread the show. Anyway, back to the show. I hope you enjoy the interview with Ken Fisher on electronic health records and just medicine in general. Enjoy. Well, I'm, okay. Well, I'm joined here by my new friend, Ken, Dr. Ken Fisher, who's in your Kalamazoo. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And we're going to talk about electronic health records, which is uh, right. not super exciting for the average person when they think about it, because quite frankly, computers are ubiquitous in our society. They are everywhere at this point. And but for us in medicine, it's kind of a new sort of thing. Uh, you know, as far as being encompassing everything that we do in our in our practice. Um, well, perhaps a little background might help if you'd like Absolutely. to hear something. So why don't you kind of tell us how we get here? Because I think when most people think of computers, they, they think of going to the store and, you know, now you type in your, your credit card information or they can get your emails and things like that. And, and they certainly seem like, uh, right. uh, something that's used to help with the efficiency of getting things done. No question about it. Well, uh, let, I mean, let's go back a little bit, um, Let's go back before 2009, where the High Tech Act was passed um, as part of the stimulus package. So before 2009, many hospitals uh, had invested a fair amount of uh, money to have an electronic medical record uh, that uh, that worked. Uh, Physicians liked them. They always got a position input as, as to what they preferred. And uh, I personally uh, was in two, two hospital systems uh, before, uh, two, two hospitals here in Kalamazoo uh, that had an excellent uh, electronic uh, medical record. And then I, I was the program director for the uh, nephrology fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. 
uh, from 2000 to 2005, and they had an outstanding electronic um, medical record. So uh, during this time frame, uh, the RAND Institute, I, I forget the exact dates, around 2002, 2004, did a study sponsored by the, electro, the electronic medical record companies that if the entire medical uh, industry used computers, uh, then it would save multiple billions of dollars. That RAND study was later, about five years later, retracted uh, by the RAND Institute <laughs> that said they had made some assumptions that have not turned out. Yeah. So anyways, in 2009, you may recall, we had a little economic trouble, uh, and there was a stimulus package. And the stimulus package uh, contained about 30 billion of the 800 plus billion uh, to to have the entire medical industry be computerized. Uh, and not only uh, did they include that, but to, to get this incentives, you had to perform uh, compu your, your work according to something called meaningful use. You had to jump through certain hoops to get reimbursed money from Medicare and Medicaid to fund your costs for going to these records. Now, at the same time, the programs that you could use had to be certified by the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. So a few companies... That's what runs Medicare and Medicaid, That's correct. correct. That, that's right. Uh, and so a few companies were able to perhaps through um, the right political contributions. Uh, In Washington? You're kidding. No, I know. It's frightening. Uh, <laughs> um, to get certified. The biggest one now is Epic. Uh, and there's Cerner and there's about three, four. Th there are others, but these are the two biggies, so, Epic and Cerner. And Epic is now in about um, – 50% of the hospitals. Um, so, and then they said, well, we're going to give you this money, but to get reimbursed for your Medicare or Medicaid fees, you're going to have to jump through certain hoops. We want information. Uh, and so um, you're going to do what is called meaningful use. Mm -hmm. So there was no field testing of these programs to stop, you know, that, that they were certifying. So they certified them on the basis that the information that they thought they needed to improve healthcare in the country and save money were the ones that you had to use. So, <laughs> so this went along and there was tremendous pushback uh, from the hospitals and from doctors. Right. right. Not only that, the cost is astronomical. For instance, when I was at Henry Ford, like I said, they had a terrific record. And now they had to get Epic. And they spent $353 million to install Epic that doctors hate. So then... Uh, and, and, you know, we have the Department of Defense, you know, spending a, a couple a billion dollars for Cerner. The Mayo Clinic is re is re put is putting in Epic into their all their facilities for I'm told I, I don't know the exact number, approximately over a billion dollars. Every yeah, physician who uses Epic, it's costing about forty thousand dollars to install and about $40,000 to use. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, $40,000 for uh, updating each year. Right. The upgrades right, are yeah. expensive. Right. So you're talking huge amounts of money. But there's another kicker, and that is it's so onerous of the information that physicians have to put in 
that now physicians are spending approximately two-thirds of their time entering data and other administrative tasks instead of seeing patients. So, <laughs> so everybody's saying, oh, we have a doctor shortage now. And of course, one of the reasons we have a doctor shortage is doctors are busy doing busy work. Uh <clears throat> So, you know, I think the thing to point out to people is that, uh, you know, when it comes to information systems uh, from computerized standpoint, that it's used to uh, to make your job easier, to improve efficiency, to improve productivity. Right. With, exactly. Uh, with, uh, whether it comes to um, supply chains or, you know, ordering things. I mean, it's definitely a much better way of, of getting things done. And if when it comes to keeping track of records, for instance, if you have an electronic record, by all means, it should be much more efficient and much more much simpler for a physician or any sort of person to keep to keep track of everything, right? I mean, so in every way, Absolutely. in every way, you would think that it makes a hundred percent sense to have this sort of system. My understanding is the problem. It, well, there are two pro- two big problems. One is, as you mentioned, not everyone was on an electronic record, uh, and then if they are on records, they didn't communicate with each other. This would be similar to having a Mac and a PC and not being able to use the same software. And so for us to exchange information, exactly. if I'm a private practitioner or someone in a specialist who's maybe not part of some health system that uses the same computer system, I try and send records over and I'm basically copying my records, sending it over by fax or something. And then either it has to get scanned in or you're just looking at paper while you're using electronic record. And so the continuity is not there. Right. right? And then, Right. Oh, there, there are so many right. issues. Um, yes, there are so many issues. So I, I am firmly in, in, uh, in favor of electronic medical records. Uh, but I believe every physician has slightly different needs and a slightly different patient uh, uh, population. So I believe that physicians should be able to choose the, the electronic medical record that fits their needs and improves their relationship with the patient instead of interfering with it. So to me, the, the way to do that is to open up the market. But by, by the Medicare and Medicaid forcing physicians to use a small number of, 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 of a small number of companies producing these records, it limits the availability for physicians and hospitals to choose something that meets their needs. Then also, this was done in 2009. And in 2009, uh, there weren't the apps that are available today. And, and this electronic field is the, fasting move, the fastest moving field in the world. So why not let, you know, uh, uh, teenagers <laughs> write apps for docs uh, that work that in that improve their uh, communication with patients for five hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. in, instead of these gigantically expensive, and and think about this: nurses now, I'm told by a uh, by a, a professor of nursing that nurses are now spending 80% of their time on the computer, not with patients. So the whole system uh, is, has taken over, uh, uh, has taken over uh, the field. Also, uh, for trainees, I'm sure you, you've seen this experience, trainees are now spending three to four times the amount of time on the computer than they are seeing patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, they're losing their skills. I, I still do some teaching, and I, it, it's just amazing to see the residents when they enter the, the residency from medical school having pretty good physical diagnostic skills, and by the end of their residency, it's gone because they spend so little time with patients. Yeah, I, I um, noticed that with the surgical residents. I feel like, I mean, they do the surgeries, yeah. obviously, but their time, and, and I don't think it's any it's a discredit to them. I think that's just the requirements yeah. is to spend so much time on the computer to looking at labs and, and, and documentation. I mean, I, I feel my wife's a pediatrician and they have their own electronic sure. medical records. So they don't use the, they're, they're outside the health systems here in this area. And so they have one that is, I would, I guess you'd say it's pediatric specific. And so the information it gathers and manages is 
useful to them. And that now that being said, there's a lot of stuff, and this is probably a problem with our healthcare system in general, that a lot of the health, the computerized systems are used not just for maintaining notes and records as far as um, laboratories and, you know, uh, physical examinations and, you know, imaging results, but also it's, it's designed to, for your billing and with third party payers, whether that's a CMS like a Medicare, Medicaid, or whether it's a, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield sure. or someone else. Right. And so you have two sort of opposing um, pulls on your electronic medical record system. One is trying to maximize the amount of information you gather and and hold so that you can get your billing done efficiently through your third party payer. And the other is to try and manage the information for the physician. And then it sounds like now with Medicare and Medicaid with their, and CMS with their, um, with their additional uh, meaningful use rules, that they are adding all sorts of other things. And when you say hoops to jump through, I think you're, you're kind of referring to things like demographic information and, and gathering all sorts of information that is of no benefit clinically or even from a billing standpoint for physicians or health systems. It's just like, we need to know how many people are of Hispanic origin, how many people speak Spanish, how many people you right. know, are age 50 or over, right. whatever. I mean, all kinds of, where they wear seatbelts, how they best, you know, I mean, we ask questions when they, people come in, how do you best learn? Do you learn by visually? Do you learn by, you know, auditory? Are, you know, can you read? Uh, which I think is always funny on a survey you have, can you read? But, um, and I don't think anybody ever looks at this information. I mean, no one goes up to a patient, you know, I, boy, I saw that you learned best visually. So I brought in some diagrams to tell me how you rate your pain. I mean, no one does that because there's so much information is gathered, oftentimes by nurses. Again, superfluous stuff that it doesn't affect patient care at all. Oh, there's no question. And then, you know, uh, this was touted at the time that, well, you know, it's so expensive to for people to repeat CAT scans and MRIs. If you could share the information, look at all the money you could save. Right. Well, there are two problems. There are a couple of problems with that. Number one, they always quote the charge master price for CAT scans and MRIs. So a charge master price for a CAT scan would be about $2,000. Whereas a, the cash cost, if, if you go to an independent unit, the cash price is $200. So the savings that they supposedly were going to you know, provide uh, is, 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 is infinitely smaller. Right. But there's something more important. And that is, in two th it's not kept up with the times. In 2009, there was no cloud. Well, you can, you can put CAT scans, MRIs, lab data in the cloud for about $5 a year. So, so here you have the Mayo Clinic spending a billion dollars so that the different units can share information when they could put it on the cloud for $5. Per patient. Right. I mean, so in other words, it's fixed in time in while working with the fastest moving uh, field in the world. So, so it, okay, so, so the, the premise that you're going to save money by sharing these expensive tests, number one, they're much less expensive in cash terms. And two, you can share them for peanuts uh, by putting it on the cloud. And, and, but I think there's a, something much more important, and that is I believe patients should have the choice as to whether they want their record on the Internet or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure you've had this experience where it's difficult now to ask sensitive questions to patients because they know that, that the answer to that question could actually be on the Internet. And over, you know, one of the uh, references I read for this article in the Wall Street Journal, almost 100 million medical records have already been hacked. That's a lot for the only 260 or what, 350 million people. That's almost a third. That's right. Right. So what, what, I, what I believe happens, these hackers, they hack into hospital records and then they, they uh, blackmail the hospitals that they're going to post mm -hmm. it if they don't get paid off. And so they're getting paid off. So, but, but it inhibits, you know, physicians asking delicate questions 
Um, you know, have you ever had uh, homicidal thoughts? Uh, you know, have you ever uh, fantasizing this, that, or the other thing? Well, now patients are very reluctant to talk to doctors about sensitive issues. Sure, yeah. So, and, and yet you could put the, the stuff that, the, the things, the laboratory test that they thought was going to save a lot of money, you could put it on the cloud, like I say, for $5. Um, and then, so then what happened historically, so this was strictly done by a Democratic Congress in 2009. So, but, the, you know, the Congress had another issue, and that was, the SGR, the sustainable growth rate that they threaten doctors every year that they're going to cut their their pay, payments. And of course, they were always afraid to do so. So every December 28th or something, they would say, no, we're not going to do it this year. So they decided to do away with the SGR. So what did they do to get rid of it? They Instead of taking the meaningful use uh, system that they came up with 2009, in 2000, I think it was 15, they passed the Medicare um, and CHIP, the Medicare um, and CHIP Reauthorization Act, or MACRA, which then put more imposition on, on physicians as to what they have to put in. They have MIPS and this and that and the other thing, so that more time is needed. But it was passed as a bipartisan move in Congress so in a way, Congress, um, in a way, making it bipartisan, uh, sanctified the idea that doctors should do this. So, so MACRA has reinforced this idea that you're going to use these programs um, to take care of patients. Now, to prepare for the Wall Street Journal article, I Googled, if there is any information available that, of studies that show that collecting all this data is of benefit, guess what I found? I'm going to guess it was zero. Zero is right, <laughs> except what pops up is a lot of government websites that say how wonderful. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know how wonderful this program is and how it's going to save doctors time when the evidence shows that it's consuming two-thirds of doctors' time. Uh, so it's totally false. Right. But these things are still up there on the Internet from government sites. Yeah. But yet there are no studies to show that any of this information is useful in any way. So I think, I, I think it's important um, – to try and just explain briefly what SGR was. And so I guess the best, the best explanation is the sustained growth rate, which it was, it was a, a process, if I understand correctly, that was enacted by Congress in order to limit the growth, the rate of growth of costs in, in healthcare by um, a certain formula. And Medicare's cost, right, Medicare's cost should not go up. Medicare's cost should not go up more than the increase in gross domestic right. product. And so, of course, med percentage, and of course, wise. percentage right, wise. Percentage wise. And of course, costs went far more than that. I mean, it, healthcare That's costs right. have Every gone up much more. I mean, the only thing worse than healthcare costs are, are education, higher education costs as far as inflationary growth uh, over exactly. years. And so, what happened is there's a larger and larger gap every year that Congress failed to act because, of course, physicians lobbied in Washington saying, we don't want to take a 1% pay cut. And then the next year, they, we don't want a one and a half percent pay cut, and then they don't want a two and a half percent pay cut. And before right. long, it's it, it's it got really up twenty one percent. Now, if different physician right. uh, specialties got would get affected differently based on you know how much your population is affected by Medicare Medicaid uh, charges. Right. Uh, and so then the solution was well, they finally said we're going to appease the medical community and say we're going to get rid of this. And so in another way of saving money, they they basically said we're going to institute rules. So that some people win and some people lose, right? And that we're going to increase the rates right. of return uh, of payments for some, certain people who jump through the hoops, as you say, uh, who collect the demographic information, who use the electronic records, who do all these sorts of things that we think are for best practice, and they're going to save money in the long run for our institution. And so that's what sort of solidified where we are now, right? Because they passed that, the physician said, "Woo, that was lucky." 
And then they realize that they kind of got a turd sandwich, right, in return, because they just end up getting, they have more rules to, the pay cut would have been simpler to deal with, rather than you're essentially having the same pay cut, but now just go, it's distributed unevenly throughout physicians based on who can follow the. Right, but, and and also the increase was was also peanuts. I mean, it it didn't keep up with inflation. And, and, and so, (laughs) so. So it, it seems to me that the Congress has a tiger by the tail. So they introduced Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 as um, um, as an amendment to the Social Security Act, uh, and so the, so that it's an un it's it's a it is a benefit that has uh, no uh, limits on on the extremes. Uh, and, and there were people in Congress at the time said that this is going to eventually run into real trouble because people, it's a third party payment system. So the individual has no knowledge of the cost or any care of the cost. So um, they have this system that was actually started by, uh, by Otto von Bismarck in 1888 uh, and copied throughout Western Europe. Uh, and it is destroying, uh, you know, all these governments because they're putting so much money into healthcare. Um, so the answer is put the person in charge. It's their right. money in the first place, you know. So there are many ways to deal with this. But Congress, in the past, you know, since they passed it first, they did DRGs, you know, for hospitals uh, to try to control costs. And then they did CPT codes for physicians to try to control costs. Then they did the SGR to try to control costs. And, and then they did meaningful use to try to control costs. Then they uh, did macro trying to control costs. And, and then accountable care organizations are trying to control costs. And all of these have increased costs. So you say <laughs> so so you would think <laughs> you would think that at some point somebody would say, gee, maybe we're on the wrong track. <laughs> However Yeah. Well I you know, the government has no um I guess it's the definition of insanity, right? They try the same right. thing that, over and over one of these times yeah. it's gonna work, right? Yeah, I mean so that uh I think it's safe to say that the the government has not been successful in its attempts to control healthcare costs. And I think, you know, uh, I, and before we get too far off track with the HRs, I mean, clearly it's a third party concept is what's, what causes or drives a lot of no the, the problem, right? That's no question. The, that is sort of where it starts. Well, well so, and also, okay, let's take uh, Medicare. So Medicare is, and it, it's appropriate that people over 65 uh, can get health care. I mean, there's no question that that's an appropriate. I would hope so. <laughs> However, what is happening? So a person gets paid a certain amount each week, month, or year, or whatever, and a certain amount of that has to go to the federal government to fund uh, their future Medicare usage, right? However, yeah. two things are happening. One is that life expectancy is increasing so that the cost per person is much more and medicine is improving every five years or every year or every decade. So there's much more you can do. So the cost per person is increasing far beyond what they contributed. So that now I am now a Medicare recipient. I put in about one third on average, for every Medicare patient, of what I'm going to receive. So two-thirds of that health care has to be made up by, by, my, by my children's generation or my grandchildren's generation. So instead of putting the money into the, into the federal government in the first place, like Social Security did in 1935, but at that time, at that time, the average lifespan was 65, so the government couldn't lose. But right. instead, uh, that money should have been put in an account in a person's name that they could not use till they're 65, so it could grow over time and meet these increased costs. So until they figure that out, 
I believe they'll never get out of this because it's a demographic catastrophe for the plan that they have. But I but I would say that you know most industries, say technology, for instance, for less money I can get I have much better technological uh, contact or you know utility than I ever did before. No question. And so almost every industry outside of medicine. This is not really a problem, right? It's it's very interesting just because we have more medicines and things like, well, I have access to anyone around the world. I'm talking to you over the computer for nothing. It's crazy, right? right? So costs exactly. go down in everything except healthcare, right? Healthcare, it gets can usually get more and more expensive. And well, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Right, well, clearly, yeah. Um, and probably the biggest is there are approximately 3 million people working in healthcare that have nothing to do with healthcare. Just <laughs> I counting feel like three, money. Three million are actually all in my healthcare system, but I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so as you build up the bureaucracy, so when you go to a store to buy a computer, there, there is no bureaucracy, right? You want a cell phone? Well, should I get an Android? Should I get an Apple? Should I get? Well, that's your choice, right? Right. And there's no bureaucracy. So, but in these healthcare systems, the bureaucracy just grows and grows and grows. Like, let's talk about regular insurance. You know, it's not insurance, it's prepaid healthcare. So, instead of, so the, an employee is spent, the, the employer is spending about twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for a family. So for most of them, so they can get reimbursed $1,000 a year to see a doctor. I mean, it's truly bizarre. Yeah. So it's not insurance, and that's an accident of World War II, which we can go into, but probably bore your audience. <laughs> um, so, well, so, so I guess this, this sort of dovetails into your, this dovetails into your book, right? D- understanding healthcare, uh, you know, historical perspective, uh, yes. where, you, where you discuss you know, kind of how we got here, but without right. going into too many details, I think probably right. more interesting and I, it's interesting how we got here, but I think the question is, you know, how do we get out of here? Right. Because, right. you know, understanding where you came from is important to some extent, but we need to have some sort of roadmap out because clearly EHRs are here. It makes no sense not to use computers. So you have to have an EHR oh, system no that question. works, right? So how do you get to, right. so is it, is it just the government regulations that they're forcing us, it, they're narrowing the market to only a few competitors who are making a monopsony, you know, with just right, Epic and exactly. Server. Is that the it's real problem? Cronyism at its so it's just cronyism. Yeah. And because they have, and because the healthcare systems in general are controlling a lot of the expenditures in healthcare and, and most of the, empl- uh, most of the physicians, in fact, the delivery of healthcare, that you've sort of got a system that is, it's not a, it's not a nationalized healthcare system, but it's regulated to the point where there's very little room for innovation. With, would you say that's kind of accurate right. assessment? Well, yes, but there is hope on the horizon. All right, so I'm all for hope. You know, helping, I'm all. I'm sorry. I, I said I'm I, all I for hope. I, What's that? Lay it on us. Oh, okay. There's hope <laughs> on the horizon. You know, um, health savings accounts have grown tremendously, and there are around about twenty twenty two million people in the country now have health savings accounts. And to, you know, to, to help your audience, a health savings account is an account where you can put in pre-tax dollars to pay for certain medical expenses. So uh, there's a bill now in and, – and, okay, so that's one okay. thing, health savings account. Another trend going on right now is direct primary care where you – where a patient signs a contract with a physician – that for anywhere from about $50, $70 to $100 a month, depending on the size of the family, et cetera, all their primary care is taken care of. And they can get drugs at discount and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of benefits. And they see a doctor the next day. And it's uh, really, it's, it's growing like crazy. And physicians love it because they can now spend a lot of time with patients and they don't have to answer to insurance companies or to Medicare and Medicaid. So that's growing. Now there's a bill in Congress right now, House Bill 365, I think it's Senate 1536 or 15 something, that, that says you can use your 
health savings account money to pay for direct care. Now, I'm surprised that wasn't allowed before. I'm sorry. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, actually, yeah. the Affordable Care Act actually limited health savings accounts. Uh, oh, but, okay. uh, it allowed direct primary care as your insure, as your cover as far as coverage to avoid the penalty, right? That's so, right, and and that was a Q but, Alliance thing uh, that from Washington mm-hmm. State that got it put in, and and then you know Q Alliance was uh, funded by Bezos. It went under because they had a kind of poor business plan, but direct primary care has grown tremendously because yeah, that's a right. that's an opening in the Affordable Care Act. And my stance is open that up to every physician so that you, a surgeon, your fee could be paid out of a health savings account. Uh, and that changes the dynamic completely, doesn't it? Uh, so you relate to the patient in a much more intimate way, um, et cetera, et cetera. Primary care uh, is much cheaper. Um and all kinds of uh, benefits for getting drugs at wholesale prices. Um, the model is Atlas MD. If any of your listeners want to, you know, uh, look that up. Uh, and Atlas MD. Listen to this. Atlas MD. You can re- you can purchase their electronic medical record for three thousand dollars a year. <laughs> that works much better than any of yeah. the certified programs that you have to spend $40,000 a year for. Right. Right. So, so it, and, and if, they, if they could open up this idea that, okay, most of, most of the money that a family pays is, is out of their health savings account. But should a serious issue arise, which happens to almost everybody at some time in their life, they would have a real insurance policy, a catastrophic insurance policy that they would choose, and it should be it should be available on a national level because some states pile on all these uh, associated needs and other states don't, and let people choose a plan that's a catastrophic plan that's best for them, and now you have first party transactions instead of third-party transactions, and no bureaucracy. And guess what? It works like a charm. And if your if you're, uh, le- listeners want to look more into it, it's, the, um, it, it's been done in Singapore. So when, when, when Singapore was released from the British Empire, um, they decided not to copy this European model of, of benefits from the state, but instead of the employer sending money to the federal government or self-employed when you file your taxes to the federal government to then put away for health care, that money is put into a separate individual private account that you can only use for health care. And, and another account that you can only use for healthcare when you're uh, 65 or older. Uh, and it's remarkably successful. So, so, uh, so there, there is hope. <laughs> so you're, so if you had a, uh, if you want to set up a program, let's say a few steps program for how you get to, to that point, you'd say, we're going to allow pretext dollars. So that means, uh, so for one thing, it means you no longer have to get your insurance to your employer, right? Because that the one benefit right. right now is that the employers can provide pre-tax, essentially, you know, money right. for healthcare that you can't do as an individual. Sure. What I'm lobbying for is to Congress to allow the employer to take the same pre-tax dollars and put it into the, the employee's HSA. Right, right. But, but th- their costs would go down tremendously so that they'd be, they, they would need to put in much uh, approximately a half, if, if not even less than a half. So then for the first time in 15 years, they can then raise salaries because of another issue that we haven't talked about. <laughs> Why has private insurance rates gone up so much? that the employer 
has to pay more and more for the employee's health insurance, and therefore the employee does not get a raise. Yeah, I think. Well, that's something that you want to hear about that. Well, I think so. I mean, I I can I can guess certainly, but I mean, I can tell you. Go ahead. First guess. half. Go ahead. First half. First. First of all, are we? experiences within our within our group uh, our private group and I think every business does right you you have more you may make more money but you're ending up, you're getting burned up with benefit spending and healthcare spending and so your ability to, to provide right. raises or cost of living increases is really challenged without significantly cutting into your bottom line as well right and even so but you still have- there is there is a there is a gigantic hidden cost let me just start off I have this in my book I also have this, you know, solution in chapter 10, Uh, but I have this in my book. The Mayo Clinic, of which I am a patient, um, in 2008, I, you know, I wrote this book a couple of years ago, so I I may not have these numbers exact. I believe they did $1.4 billion of Medicare business. Of that $1.4 billion, they lost 800 million. What people don't realize is that Medicare, that that hospitals lose money on Medicare and they lose much more money on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So what is going on? How do they keep the doors open? They keep the doors open by then charging private insurance more than the substantially more than their cost to make up for their losses for these two very large federal programs. So in essence, employees are surreptitiously subsidizing Medicare and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're seeing the tremendous consolidation of hospitals so that they can then charge (laughs) <laughs> private insurance, they have greater, you know, uh, force to charge private insurance more and more money. So, so this is a, a secret that Congress does not want anybody to know that private insurance is really subsidizing Medicare and much more Medicaid. Right. So... So I've seen some people mention solutions. Well, the the best thing to do is then you just have you structure your hospital system so that it can survive just with Medicare, and so it's not losing money. Because our expectation is that over time well, we're going to lose our private yeah, insurance, you, you could, and so then it's going to go down to Medicare rates. And right. so yes, we need yes. to pay everybody less. Right. You can try to do that. You can try to do that, but um, it would be very difficult. I agree. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It would be. And, and, and care would – I don't think the American public would stand for it. I mean, this is not Great Britain. Uh, you, can't, you can't let people um, hang in the halls on a gurney for you know, six days while you find a bed for them. Right. Um, right. I mean, it just, it, it just won't work. So to me, to me is – and, and – um, for Medicare, you, you eventually have to transfer the system to a Singapore-type system where, where the funds grow over time before they have a chance to use it. And for Medicaid, there was the Healthy Indiana Plan um, that was uh, stopped uh, by the Obama administration in 2012. In that program for Medicaid patients, they um, – gave them $1,100 into a health savings account, and they bought them a catastrophic insurance policy. Uh, And it was amazingly successful. Uh, And the hospitals did fine. Uh, The patients uh, were much more careful about their their health, uh, their, uh, you know, uh, uh, the way they handled their health care and this, that, and the other thing. So there is a solution. There is a solution that is not as draconian to try to get hospital chains to cut their costs to the point where uh, they can actually survive on Medicare. But don't forget, they're still going to lose money on Medicaid. So the, the system has to change. 
so that individuals are much more concerned about their health behaviors and much concerned, much more concerned about their health dollars. And like I said, it works in Singapore like a, like a champ. And I had a question about the, um, the healthy Indiana, because I know I had someone come and I think, uh, I don't remember her, recall her name, but she came and spoke, sure. she came and spoke and discussed it. She was involved in the Indiana program. She came up to Michigan and talked about it because when we were looking at the expansion of Medicaid in the state of Michigan, after the affordable care act passed and, you know, the right. states were deciding, um, they, they had used that program and I think they were eventually, they, they were hoping to get a waiver under the new affordable care act, uh, for the, for the Medicaid. So with that program, first of all, I'm curious if you know, if you happen to know what the actual savings were. And secondly, if at the end of, let's say 20 years, the savings are about 30%, 30%. significant. And so then that $1,100, if I'm, if I, someone, I used $800 that year and the $300 rolls over into the next year. Does that at some point, at some point I don't need it, right? At some point I get to 65 and hit Medicare. What, what was in that plan? Right. Did they just get to walk away with that money or is that to get returned to the state? I mean, oh, what was their incentive for, I, I, for I really don't money? know. I mean, that would have been curious um, to know what, I mean, yeah, I would have given it to right. them. I, I really don't know. Okay. Uh, I can't answer that. Um, I was just curious. You, you got the next year's money under certain, certain, and, and, and first of all, there was a sliding scale of what you put into the account also. So if you had no income, you didn't put sure, anything sure, in. Sure. But, you know, people were putting in $5 a month, $8 right. a month it was very important for people to have skin in the game so uh, so that they had the sense that they were spending their own money. Uh, and also they had to have yearly, um, yearly uh, preventative health checkups, um, which, uh, w- which was provided for them uh, from another fund. Uh, and if they didn't do that, then they didn't get the next year's Eleven hundred dollars, and yes, but if they did all that, they could carry over what they had left. But I, I don't know um, what what happened if they had like built up eleven hundred dollars. Would they get the eleven hundred dollars the next year? I mean, I think I tend to doubt. Right. I mean, I I guess (laughs) I I would. You know, Mitch Daniels was the governor at the time. I don't think he would. uh, you know, he would say, oh, we'll just keep on right. giving you this money. I, um, I don't think. And so this year, my wife and I switched to an HSA. Uh, we get our, we get our insurance. Oh, great. Employer and, and through her pediatrics group. And so anyway, we, we switched to an HSA this year because that's just what the group did. And it is, right. you know, we're not, we're obviously not poor. We, we have, we have means to get by in life just fine. But it the the amount that it changed your behavior, whoever you are, about having paying everything out of pocket, it is tremendous. We before we got all our medications from just the pharmacy down the street because it was convenient, it was easy having all one place. You right. know, you go on vacation, you can use their it's a large chain, so you can use their but then to then you start looking, well, you know, we've got eight pharmacies within ten miles of us. And so we can look it up very quickly online. And figure out what how much something costs. And we, I mean, just a medication the other day was one hundred and seventy dollars for a month supply, and then another what pharmacy charged forty. And and it's somewhat random. There's not like one pharmacy that's always cheaper. And so you have to kind of shop around. Right. But it's inc- right. it's incredible how it changed your behavior. I mean, so there's no question if you have if you eliminate the third party system, payer system, which where you have an insurance company or the government paying on someone's behalf, that it would radically change change the cost structure and how things are run in healthcare. I mean, I noticed this in another example, I, the hospital, if you ask them how much something costs, they are really unable to tell you how much anything costs. And it's because their, their exactly. entire, their entire business model was ne- if you could even call it a business model, it certainly was never predicated on costs and expenses, which is weird. If you think about for most businesses in this country or, you know, in any sort of market system, right? right. You have to know how much things cost in order to, charge a certain amount so you can cover your costs. Right. And they just don't know right. because, you know, if, and, and someone might say, well, that, how could they not know? Well, if I said, well, you want to go for a gallbladder, let's say you get gallbladder out and it's an outpatient procedure. We know exactly how much, you know, how many instruments we use and, and, you know, how much we pay the employees. 
well, we have a facility, we have advertising, we have marketing, we have the guy janitors come in, how much of that is attributed to each cost? And it becomes a very complicated ca- calculation to figure out how much, it, you know, how much you attribute those costs to the, the, the laparoscopic cholecystectomy, right? And so, right. and if your business was never predicated on that, and only the, like, the last two years you've decided, well, I got to figure out how much everything costs, it's really hard. I mean, <laughs> so I, I don't begrudge them for not knowing, except that it's kind of dumb that we had a system like that. Well, well, uh, well, uh, I would counter that you go to the website, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Absolutely, yes. And they will tell you the price exactly for the whole package. Yes, but so you could. Can be done. But their their business was they they designed that after the you know they they didn't have a huge healthcare system they were trying to create. That's they, right. They, they started with the premise that we're going to provide these these services and we need to figure out how much they cost, right? They didn't have, they didn't That's say, right. we're just going to take care of everything. And then they just sort of, but, but you know, what, fact, figured out. right. But what's very interesting, at least to me about that, the hospitals down the street have to be able to compete can now tell you their, their, their prices on, uh, uh, when you go and, and ask them to stay in business. So it can be done. Yeah. I, I'm going to guess in the C-suites, the executive suites in those hospitals, they still don't know. And they are competing against just those specific prices. And they probably have no idea if they're really making or losing money. That, that's <laughs> that's, probably that's true. my assumption. I, I couldn't prove it, but no, I'm going to no, guess. No, no. I, I bet you you're right. <laughs> I'm going to guess that's the, that's the case. You know, however, you know, however, they are making five, six uh, million dollars a year salary. Oh well, your, your <laughs> so, salary does not so is not for, indicative for of your board performance. Of directors to say, you know, George, for five million, I do hope you know what this costs. But you know, but they pick their own board, so they don't bother with yeah, that. Yeah, well, so uh, yeah, so you know, so what you know what what we're talking. So it, this started with like electronic medical records. But that's sort of a segue into the whole system, you know, a, a Congress desperately trying to control costs because they understand that eventually Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and then Social Security will be the entire federal budget. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so they are panicked, but they're so stuck on, on, on the present system that they just grope for things that actually make it worse. So what we're trying to do is to say, yes, every person in this country should have access to medical care. To me, that's, that has got to be. And, and I propose that it's in my interest to pay for that to happen because if everybody is as healthy as possible, then they can be as productive as possible and GDP will go up, and I'll have a higher standard of living. So it's sort of the same thing as why I, at 77, <laughs> paid local taxes to put little kids, to, so, so little kids here can go to school, because it's in my interest that these kids get educated and can, you know, be productive, and I have a higher standard of living. So to me, it's the same thing. So, you know, I don't invoke any great moral cause, which some people do, I believe it's in my self-interest for everybody to be as healthy as possible. But you cannot do it at at 18 to 20% of GDP because what you're not doing, and especially for Medicaid and states, you are, because that, that number is so huge, states are spending so much money on healthcare, they are shrinking their commitment to education. Now, I ask you, how can a society survive by not adequately educating many of its young people, especially in the inner city? So we, we in healthcare are consuming probably, it should be about, you know, because, you know, the higher the GDP, the more people spend on healthcare. So we should be spending probably around 14% of GDP on healthcare, not 18%. Well, now you're talking 
huge amounts of money, which you could then put into educating our children. Right. So at least that's this, you know, my well, and, stance and on sense. this. Thing. I mean, I, and I think no one would deny anyone have access to any market, right? I think you should have access to food and water and all those things, right? Oh, I think the absolutely. question is you know, how you deliver it. That's going to be the most effective and that's going to provide the most benefit for everybody. And I, exactly. And I think, you know, precisely. And, you know, you know, we sort of fell into this, right. um, you know, um, Otto von Bismarck, you know, started care to fight mocks and angles in 1888. And he built, you know, a healthcare system. Uh, he also made retirement age 65. He also unified Germany under the most uh, militaristic uh, um, province in the country, the Prussians. Uh, so Otto von Bismarck has probably had a more significant impact on, on history of the world than probably any other single individual. But anyways, uh, and then Lloyd George, you know, copied it in 1911, in England. and that became the forerunner of the National Health Service in 1948. Uh, and everybody said, oh, I guess this is the way you do it. Instead of saying, wait a second, why don't we put the individual in charge? Right. So, so in, in your so book, find us. in your book, Understanding Healthcare, it is, where can yes. we find that book? Oh, well, it's it's all over. It's in it's on Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble. Um, it, it's it's in every outlet. It's all you got to do is uh, uh, is go to Amazon and go and, and put in there, you know, understanding healthcare historical perspective. It'll pop up. Or Kenneth A. Fisher, M.D. If you don't put the M.D., you'll get uh, Kenneth Fisher, the stockbroker. Oh, is he any good? Who is much richer than I am? Believe in me. In the right profession. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, or uh, you can go to www.freedominhealthcare.org, and that's our, you know, that's our website, and it describes the book, and it has links to Barnes and Noble and Amazon and this, that, and the other place. And it's available electronically and in print. Um, and you know, it's uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> I spent about a year and a half, two years writing it, uh, and 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 my wife was my taskmaster, so you know right. it's accurate. If she's anything like my wife, yes, very much. Uh, well, <laughs> I appreciate talking with a nephrologist. I and it was oh, it was uh, wonderful it was a pleasure. talking to you. Uh, I hope everyone goes out and gets the book. It looks super interesting. I apologize that I have not had a chance to read it. I will have links to to that book, the site. And the and the Wall Street Journal okay, article great. that we were referencing earlier that we actually didn't talk about initially, but um, that you just was recently published. And also, um, there's a really good one that I was looking through uh, from Modern Medicine Network. At least that's where I saw it published on um, the is the EHR an ill conceived obsession. And I think that kind of goes certainly goes through the steps that we discussed today, the problems with EHR, and you know what you kind of do to fix it. I think. Opening up the market is pretty much the right. It, yeah, it, I know. It shouldn't right? be hard. I mean, you just right. You just let doctors choose something that helps them. Yeah. Instead of hinders them, it's it, you know what I to to finish. I, I don't understand. So, you know, in in seventeen sixty or whenever it was, when King George and the Parliament put a tax on tea. The residents of the Bay, the Bay Colony decided this is unacceptable, and they threw the tea in the water, right? Yeah, I've heard about that. Right. So, and they say, you can't do this. Well, this is such a hidden tax on people. I mean, you, you know, hospital systems are spending billions, well, well, real big ones, billions of dollars. Doctors are spending a fortune. They're spending more time doing this than taking care of patients. The results are much worse than attacks on tea. I mean, patients are suffering. Right. Uh, there's less time with patients. Their care is interrupted. Um, and, and yet, there's no pushback. There's no pushback from patients. There's no pushback from doctors. There's no pushback from nurses. There's no pushback from hospital executives. And I'm wondering, what happened? Well, why is this? You see what yeah, I mean? Well, it's... It, and 
I guess I would push back on you and say there's no pushback because there are a lot of physicians who are upset with this, patients who are upset. But I think it's sort of a reflection of people don't really know what the problem is, right? Right. Is it the electronic records? Is it the healthcare system? Is it the laws? Is it the bureaucrats? Is it the pharmaceutical? I mean, it's it's such a huge, it's a multifaceted problem, right? I mean, we're just sort of focusing on one little thing. But as yeah. we showed during this interview, you pull that one little strand, the whole thing gets unraveled pretty quickly and you see, you realize how much is actually involved, you know, how it, it, how the large scope of this problem. Right. So again, I want to thank you so much for being oh, on. Thank you for, it was a very, for it was having a pleasure. me. Appreciate it. And best of luck. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Okay. That's great. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad we finally uh, overcame technology. Uh, yes. Well, I guess. I'm not... well, well, you know, when all else fails, reboot. Yeah. I only wish my car worked the same way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well, pretty soon they will because pretty soon a car w- uh, will be a computer. Right. Well, you know, it's probably half a computer right now, right? I mean. Exactly. I I lift it up and I can change the washer fluid and the oil and that's about the extent of it. I totally agree.